right. Here it is, the Downtown Zone podcast. Saturday, July 21st, 2018. And here we go. We're going to be going through the book of Luke. Fourteen, And just to set the table, Jesus has been uh, teaching, he's been guiding, he's been working, he's been doing miracles, he's been doing crazy things, he's been gaining notoriety, he's been gaining crowds, and the Pharisees came to him and said, hey, you better get out of here, Herod wants to kill you, and he he was doing all this, and he was headed to Jerusalem. Well, as we come to Luke 14, Jesus is within a week of his death, and he knows it. He's going to Jerusalem. He's headed there, and he is, with laser-like precision, knowing that he's headed to the wrong side of what the leaders, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, the chief priests want to do to him. Well, verse 1, it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. They watched him closely. The ruler of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the hyper-religious guys. These are the guys that want to add to the Torah. They add with their traditions. They add with all the, th- the, the boxes that you have to check on top of what God has already said. And to the Pharisees, it wasn't just about the Torah. It wasn't just about the Old Testament. It wasn't just about the law. It was about tradition. They added to the scriptures. They wanted people to conform. They added uh, more rules, regulations, so that people had to gain righteousness outside of just trying to follow the law. And um, you remember Paul, he was a Pharisee. He said in Philippians 3, Circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained for me, those I counted as lost for Christ. And you see this today, these religious people, these people that are looking and watching Jesus closely, these people that are making sure that you do every little thing on the Sabbath day. They say, hey, it's Jesus and whatever, gospel and whatever. And these guys, they, they, they said, hey, it, yes, the law for sure, but also our tradition. See, because the Pharisees were about two things. They wanted one, where, wh- what did you think, where did true authority reside? Is it in the scriptures only? Like the Pro- Protestants said, sola scriptura? Was it just the scriptures? Was that where authority came from? Or was it also in the traditions? Was it in the Talmud? Was it in the expounding upon the scriptures? What people thought? The people, you know, the people in big big hats, big
big robes, making decisions in big boardrooms, and making rule books about how how you should live and how you should do certain things. And you can go on and on into what the Jewish people do on the Sabbath, all the laws and all the rules and all the regulations they have so that they don't break the Sabbath, so they don't commit to any work. But the Pharisees, they wanted to see with Jesus, would he, would he submit to their traditions? <laughs> and he never did. Well, the second thing that the Pharisees talked about is, what company did you keep? Remember they said, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In Matthew 11, Luke 7, you see that. They thought that you could catch sin like a cold, and that's what religious people do today. Are you okay? You, I see the people that you're hanging out with. Um, we, need to, we need to separate ourselves from these people. We need to separate from the world. Oh, the world. I, I need to protect my family and my... Oh, and Jesus flips that on its head and says, hey, these are the people I'm hanging out with. I'm going, into the, I'm going to the sick. I'm going to the people that are in despair. I'm going to the people that have dropsy, like Dropsy Dan. Well, here we are, and we're dropped into this situation. Jesus is invited to the Sabbath meal with these Pharisees and all the people that come with it. And what would happen on the Sabbath day is they'd invite everybody into this house, and they'd have a triumvirate table, so a table with three sides, and the most important people would sit at the front. And I, I can imagine Jesus sitting back in the corner, and they're watching him closely. They're watching him with evil intent. They're watching him with uh, the intent of maybe a robber who wants to come in and break into your house, or maybe a predator who's sneaking up on his prey. They're trying to catch him. And Jesus knows this before he accepts the invitation. He knows it. It's a setup. They want to catch Jesus doing something on the Sabbath that they don't approve of. And of course, Jesus, who was tempted in all ways yet without sin, knew this and did what he's going to do without sinning, without breaking the law. So the first thing that I want to just, he goes to this thing. So these guys are trying to set him up, and he goes. I mean, these Pharisees and these leaders are the main, they're the main force, the main thrust behind Jesus' own slaying. He knows it, and he decides he's going to go, and he loves these guys to the end. I mean, I don't think I would go. I, I would not go to this. Would you go to this? You're criticized, you're judged, you're trash-talked, you're wrongly treated, you're grief-given, but you're still going to go? I mean, it just reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Love never fails. And instead of reading that with love, when you're reading this portion of scripture, you can think of Jesus suffers long in his kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. There's no pride in Jesus. And it says here, Jesus answered. 
spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, which of you having a son, donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. I mean, what is the deal with these people? What is, what is wrong with religious people? And when you come into contact with these people, you, you probably don't think that they're, you're not, the first word that comes into your mind is, oh, there's religious people. But there's three things that come to my mind when we think about religious people. Number one, they're defined by what they're against. They're always judging. They're always making points. They're always negative. They're always against everything. And I think Jesus and I think the Father would always be keen on us not being so worried about what we're against, but what we are for and who we are for. I mean, we're for Jesus. We're for the kingdom. We're for heaven. We're for righteousness. We're for salvation. We're for consecration. We're for future glorification. We are for people living for Jesus. And, you know, when you think about it, I think the scripture is always going to tell you the best story. In James 1.27, it says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So when these guys are more worried about rules and regulations and the boxes that you got to check to make sure that you please God and, and receive salvation, God is saying, hey, if you want pure and undefiled religion, if you truly want to be religious, you know what you should do? You should find the most weak people in our culture, the orphans and the widows, in their time of trouble, when they're in the most need. You should visit them. You should help them. You should guide them. You should love them. And, you know, in doing that, you're going to keep yourself unspotted from the world because your main goal, your main thrust is not to pin other people and to find their faults and to find how they're not accomplishing what they're supposed to do but actually go on the other side and find the people that need the help and go and help them. The second thing that we see about religious people is they, write, they die on the wrong hill. They, you know, on different issues. I, I, they'll die on the hill of, you know, being against liberals or being against abortion or, or they'll die on the hill of, you know, like these guys, what are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? And you see all these different types of uh, sects of Christianity or cults that do this type of stuff, and they just die on the wrong hill. And instead, they should think about the one that died on the right hill, which is Jesus. And the third thing, they don't allow themselves to repent. You know, you'll talk to them, they'll do something. I mean, they're always judgy. They are um, just very uh, cold, rigid, and they never apologize. And if they do apologize, it's always reluctant. It's always half-hearted. And they're, you know, even if they do apologize, they're going to follow it up and they want to drive their points home. You know, and the big thing is, and I, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this probably just as much as anybody, but they're great deflectors. You know, you'll, you'll tell them what they got wrong, what happened, uh, maybe a sin that they committed, and the first thing they'll do is they'll flip that on its head, and they'll quickly turn it into a personal attack on you and your character. And what I'd say to these people is, hey, they instead of being unwilling to apologize, why don't you practice saying, you know, I was wrong, my bad. 
2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So when you're the guy that, that, that half-heartedly apologizes and you want to just bring your point home and you might listen, you might apologize, but then you're going to just follow it up with bringing your point home, I'd say, hey, why don't you instead show true repentance, true uh, sorrow, and then you'll, you'll bring salvation to the situation and to your life presently. And uh, right here in verse 3, it says, and Jesus answering. The funny thing is nobody asked any questions. There was not a point where, you know, anyone was asking questions, but he knew their thoughts. He was always one step ahead or two or three steps ahead, and he knew what they were thinking. They were judging him. They were looking at him. They were looking for something that they could pin him into uh, submission. And it reminds me of the story of the book of Revelation. John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. He also booked wrote the, the Gospel of John, First and Second, Third John. And he's in uh, he's he's in the spirit. He's caught up in the spirit in heaven and he's watching all this crazy stuff go on. And there's the the bold judgments and there's all these judgments that are going on. And in Revelation nine, uh, John's sitting there and it's and he says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? So John is seeing these people, these these guys, these gals, up in heaven in white robes, and he's just watching. He's just being an observer, probably in awe, can't believe what he's seeing. He's caught up in the Spirit. He hasn't gone to heaven yet, but here he is. And one of the heavenly elders comes up to him and doesn't ask him a question, but answered. Answered what? Well, John was probably wondering, who are these people? And one of the heavenly elders said, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And you know the story. He, he says, I don't know. You tell, you tell me. And he goes on to tell him that these are the people that they, they died in the, the uh, great tribulation. And they lived for the Lord in great tribulation. And, and now in heaven, they get to be right up in the throne. And I think what this shows us, Jesus answering before anybody asks any questions and it just shows us an example of how we should go about ministry. We should be initiators. We should be instigators. We should be inaugurators of the gospel. We should be inaugurators of the ministry, wherever we're at. You can't wait around and hope that somebody asks you if you're a Christian. You can't wait around or hope that somebody's going to ask you or, um, you know, or inquire of you um, some heavenly or some gospel-type question or inquiry. So you have to actually answer. Somewhere deep in there, you have to find some type of kingdom talk, and you need to do that. You need to be an initiator and instigator in that. And if you want to be in the ministry in any kind of way, you can't wait for people to come ask you and tap you on the shoulder. Maybe that's the case in some situations, but most of the time, it's going to be you initiating it. You have to go after it. And, you know, here we go a little bit more. It says... uh, and verse 3, spoke to the lawyers saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They had nothing to say. Because if they said yes, then their trap was worth nothing. If they said no, well, okay, then you're wrong. Because I'll go back to Numbers and I'll go back to Leviticus and I'll go back to Deuteronomy and show you where it says, hey, actually, you can do good things on the Sabbath. You can't, And there's specific um, laws that actually talk about 
you know, doing good to people and to animals. And I mean, if God says that you're supposed to do good things, it can't trump these other laws like, hey, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. They work together. So you should be able to do good things on the Sabbath and it not be considered work. But they kept silent and he took him and healed him and let him go. So here's, you know, Phil the Pharisee and here's Dropsy Dan. And you've got, like Luke would say, from the uttermost to the guttermost. So you've got these people, the uttermost, the, the most orthodox, most committed, most reverent, so they think, people in all of Jewish orthodoxy. And then you have this guy with dropsy. And you, we can go into what dropsy is, but this guy was having problems and it, it was a retention of water. It's called edema. And so you could see it on his face. And I mean, you know when I can see sin on somebody's face? When I go to Walmart <laughs> at late at night to go get something and I can see the pain and the struggle on some of these people's face that are deep into drug abuse, deep into alcoholism, deep into whatever. You can see the pain. You can see the struggle on these people's faces. And then on the other side, you can just imagine the looks on these Pharisees' faces. You can see the smugness. You can see the pride. You can see the arrogance. You can see the um, self-reliance on their face. And you've got these two faces. And Jesus, he took him and healed him. Can you imagine that? This guy, he probably has some kind of congenitive heart condition. He has some type of cancer of the liver, the kidneys. And who knows? Maybe he's about to die. And um, Jesus heals him. I mean, just like that, boom. Immediately, he, you can see the difference. Immediately, the drops, he's gone. And he just says, hey, get out of here. Because what's going to happen next isn't, isn't for you. And they... He looked at him and he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They kept silent. He healed them. Then he answered them, which of you having a donkey, and it also says in other translations, a son or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they couldn't answer him regarding these things. They could not answer him. So you just think about the type of scrutiny this is. I've been in situations where you, you, know, you, you have a parent or you have a, a sibling or you have a friend or you have a boss or a teacher or uh, a supervisor or anything like that where this intense scrutiny is on you. Well, this is what's going on with Jesus. Jesus is doing all these good things, but he has so much scrutiny on him by the people that should be lauding his arrival and he doesn't show, he never shows it. He just shows serenity. He shows peace, patience, wisdom. He shows an enduring spirit. And he shows what we ought to have when we come against these same types of circumstances. And I'm sure we want to have these types of things, but we just, we just don't, we're not able to show this with the same type of ability he has. And I think the big reason is, what are you doing in the morning? What are you doing with your, with your walk in the morning? And we're going to get to it, but I think, the big thing is Jesus every day would go to a solitary space and he would pray every morning. And I think that's something that we ought to get down to. Well, verse 7, so he told a parable to those who were invited. So he started with the Pharisees. He goes in on the Pharisees. They were there to set him up. And now he's going to the guests of the party. So probably some other Pharisees. Um, there are probably some other, you know, 
qualified leaders in the community. He told those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come to you give and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you were invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when you, so when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sat at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I think the main thing we see here is pride, 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 pride. It's evil, it's pernicious, it's vicious. The problem is, is that we use pride in our culture as a virtue. It's a motivating factor of the Western culture, okay? Self-esteem, we need more, we need more, we need to be better. We need self-help books, we need self-actualization, we need, you know, you, we're in the postmodern world, your truth, my truth, don't offend me, it's all about me. We, we've come into this place of marshmallows and unicorns and rainbows. I need a safe space. I need a safe space. I need a safe space. Time in America, that's where we're at. Did he just say that? Safe space. I'm, I'm feeling kind of awkward. I'm feeling kind of awkward. Well, the, the Bible says that God hates pride. C.S. Lewis said, pride is the mother of all sins. And it's the original sin of Lucifer. You see, God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. He wants us to see that the best place is the lowest place. We've got this triangle in our head of how it should be where all of the subservient people in our life, should be ser- they should be doing everything that they can to make our lives better so that we can be in the most comfortable situation possible. But Jesus flips that, that pyramid upside down where the greatest place, the greatest place, is the most uh, subservient place. So Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus telling his his uh, this, his twelve disciples, "Hey, those that will be last will be first, and first will be last." So if you want to be at the top, you've got to go to the bottom. And right here, it's a you know in Proverbs twenty six thirteen it says, "Do you see a man wise in his own eyes?" There's more help for a fool than for him. And Proverbs 8, it says, Pride and arrogance, I hate, says the Lord. And there's tons of examples of this, of this in the scriptures. The most important one is probably where, where we see the origin of sin with Lucifer. You know, in Luke 14, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. You can read more on that in Ezekiel 28, 1 Timothy 3, 6. But what we see is Satan himself. He was adorned as the chief cherub, the chief worship leader of heaven, so to speak. And he started to worship himself. And God said, hey, it's, you're done. You're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. You see it with Adam and Eve. You see it with Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against God. And the end of that wasn't good. 
And then you've got Cora, Cora and company, who in number 16, you know the story. You've got Moses and Aaron who are leading the children of Israel. And you've got the sons of Levi come, Korah and his brothers. And they say, why are you guys, the, you guys are acting like you're the prince of, uh, of the children of Israel. And Moses is like, what are you talking about? This is what God has set about. He set this in place. So why don't you come? And the, the pride that the sons of Korah had, God was ready to take out the whole group of people. And Moses said, whoa, 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 whoa. And he said, why don't you just let the earth swallow up these men who have done this? And right then and there, the earth swallows up Korah and all the company that, that rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And um, you see it in the New Testament. You've got Herod in Acts 12 where he gets up on his throne and the people are, and he, he's speaking and, and the people are saying, Oh, he's got the voice of a god, and he didn't give any. He didn't give any uh, acknowledgement to God, and it, it says it's a crazy story in Acts twelve. Uh, the angel comes down and just smites him, and he goes dead. And right then, the Bible says that worms came and ate him. Right then, just started eating him worms, and uh, and then it follows up with, and then they kept preaching and teaching, and the church continued to grow. So what's the moral of the story? Be humble. And the story I always think of is the one that we'll be studying in a couple weeks with Luke. But Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of a Pharisee who comes and says, thank you that I'm not like one of these. They're they're at the the temple. And um, the Pharisee comes up and he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this sinner. But you've allowed me to be a Pharisee. And then you've got the, this, this sinful tax collector who comes in and he can't even look up to heaven. And he gets on his knees and he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, hey, that guy, he goes away more justified than the Pharisee. And that's how we should be. We should go to God. The, the, in the book of Hebrews, it says, come to the throne of grace boldly to obtain mercy. And that's what we should be doing. Well, moving on. Verse 12, then he also said to him who invited him. So he goes from the Pharisees, then he goes to the guests, and now he's going to go to the, the, the actual Pharisee that invited him. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brother, your relatives, for, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you, be, you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, first of all, there is going to be a resurrection of the just. Okay, what are the just? The just are those that believe in Jesus. Those are the people that have a saving faith in their heart and in their their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible says that all knees shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Everybody's going to, whether they want to or not, whether they believe it or not. They're going to do it. And if you do it now, in this life, you will be a part of the just. And the question is, the resurrection of the just, that's going to happen. There's going to be a great white throne judgment. Everybody's going to go. Everybody's going to be there. And the question is, are you going to be on the right side of it? And if you are, 
the way that you live this life is how you'll be repaid. And there's a ton of scriptures on this. But the big thing is, why should we be generous? And we could go a million ways on this. But I think the core answer starts with 1 John 3, 16 through 18, where, he said, where John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we had to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So the Apostle John is saying, hey, I don't want you just loving in what you say. Just going to church, oh, praise the Lord, amen, yes, yes. But I want to see it. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give up some of my, um, I'm gonna give up some of my gifts by telling a story, and I've got a, a number of these. But uh, just last week, uh, I, I've been studying for this teaching for a while, and um, I've been thinking a lot about different things throughout this chapter, and this thing right here of being generous and not shutting up your heart when you see a brother in need. It just struck me. We were my son and my my family and I were we were driving into uh, McDonald's and there was a guy who had a sign, and it said, you know, anything helps. Need some food, and I just knew, you know, I've done it a few times now in my life. It's like, oh, well, that's happening. So there there was nobody. The line for to go to the drive through was just there was probably twenty deep. So instead, I parked the car and I go inside, get my kids and myself something and then I get another meal in a separate bag well my son comes in and uh, he's just little four Elijah and uh, little four-year-old and I say hey buddy we're gonna go take this over to this guy he needs some food and I want you to say God bless you when we're done and he goes oh we're gonna go okay and so we walk over there and uh, there's I mean this is there's just cars everywhere, people coming in, going out. And it wasn't, I, there was nothing in my heart, I don't think, that was like, oh, I'm going to say this in the, in the sermon or anything like that. But it was just, you know what? God says to do this. I've got the resources. This guy's in need. Boom. We gave it to him. He was super thankful, said, hey, God bless you. Eli didn't say anything, but he was just in awe. Like, what, what just happened? Well, we go back to the van and he was talking about it, and Eli, you know, he's like, yeah, this guy we gave food to, and he was telling Katie, well, when we drive back by, the guy has vanished, and it was like a minute or two, and the guy's just gone. He had a cardboard, he had a backpack, he had all this stuff. You'd think he'd be gorging right there, but just gone, and I have no clue where he went. But I think that's, I mean, that's not just, but I think we should intentionally, as a church, you as a Christian, not, oh, yeah, well, my church does this, this, or that, or I know some Christians that do this. and But I think we as individuals need to go to God and say, okay, what do I need to do? Who are the brothers in need that I need to go to so I can help them? Because the love of God is shown to me when Jesus Christ laid down his life. Jesus, see, the Bible says that Jesus is God. He is the perfect image of God. So when he came to earth, how he lived is how we ought to live. And he was always giving, not just of his resources, not just of his money, not just of his 
tithes and offerings or whatever. He was giving of everything to the point where he gave up his life. And I think in our very clean Christianity, we fail to do that a lot of times. Well, the second reason why we should be generous, second, God challenges the Christian to give. In Malachi 3, 9 through 11, God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you, God? And God says, In tithes and offerings. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your own sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in that field. So God is saying right here, he says it in uh, verse 10, I believe, try me now in this. God is challenging the Christian. He's challenging the believer. He's challenging the follower of Christ to try him, to bring the tithe into the storehouse. And tithe, is it's first talked about, in, um, well, we, we read about it in uh, Genesis when Melchizedek comes and visits Abraham. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, it goes on about that. Basically, we see a Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, Melchizedek comes, and Abraham gives him a tenth of what he has. And that's what it's referring to, is that we should bring a tenth a tithe to the storehouse. What's the storehouse? Well, it's probably your home church, first of all, South Beach Church or wherever you go to church. And secondly, you know, it's also uh, other Christian organizations that do the work of God that need resources. I mean, locally, I can think of a number. You should be giving to South Beach Church. You should be giving to Young Life. You should be giving to Youth for Christ if we had that. You should be giving to um, YC, you know, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Whatever you can do to further the gospel, to further the kingdom, to further um, the charitable work that God wants to distribute to a lost and depraved world, you should do. And the number one thing is uh, you should be giving to your home church. That's what God says. He's, he's challenging you to give to the church. And Jesus is saying, hey, we need to give. We need to give freely. He says, uh, Paul, or Paul, Paul says that Jesus told him it's more blessed to give than to receive. And uh, right here, we, we just need to realize, hey, you need to give a tenth. What does that mean? It means when, you know, whether before or after taxes, you should take a tenth and you should give it. You should just do it automatically. And the Bible, God's challenging you. He's saying, hey, I'm not only going to open up the windows of heaven so you can't hold it. I'm going to rebuke the devourer. You know, when you get your check and you have no clue where your money went, it's already gone. It's like you had holes in your pockets. You're walking around and... People are just taking your money. You have no clue where your money went. You look in your account. You're like, what? Where did all this, where did the money go? Well, God says, hey, <laughs> I'll rebuke the devourer. That's not going to happen. Not only that, but things will just start happening. And I think I've seen it. You know, when you don't tithe or you're not listening to God in some situations, it's like, oh, you got that ticket. You got that 
uh, bill came in, you got this that happened, you had to replace it, and all of a sudden your money is just gone. And God says, hey, I'll rebuke the devourer. Try me now in this. Third, how? There's a few stories that I just want to touch on. I'm not going to read them. But in Luke, you've got Luke 21, the widow's offering. She brought, you had all these people giving out of their abundance, and she gave everything she had. And he said, that's the heart we should have, Jesus said. You can read that in Luke 21. Luke 19, we got Zacchaeus. He's, he's the tax collector. He climbs up in the tree. Jesus is walking by. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come visit you and come stay at your house. He hops down. They have dinner. And eventually Zacchaeus says, I'll give everything, you know, everything that I got from the wrong motive, or, and I'll give it back fourfold. And that's the type of heart we should have. And lastly, Matthew 6, we should have the attitude, give anonymously. Give without the desire for recognition or reward. That's what we should be doing. Well, verse 15, now when the, one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So you've got Jesus who he's at this dinner party on the Sabbath. And, you know, when you're reading through the book of Luke, you got chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. It's all the same day. So he's at this guy's house and they're having uh, the Sabbath meal. Well, he goes after the Pharisees, then he goes after the guests, then he goes after the host, and there's just this awkwardness and this tenseness. It's almost like we're in an office episode. You've got Michael Scott, who's just saying awkward things, and then this guy gets up and he just says, hey, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, I don't know if that guy should have said anything, because Jesus then said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to those who were invited. Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and I am therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly in the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done, as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Well, these guys start to make excuses. They're invited into the great supper. The master is ready to sup with those that have been invited, and they begin to make excuses. And you've maybe heard the quote that says, those, are good, those that are good at making excuses are good at nothing else. And I find it to be true. Those people that are good at making excuses, what they tend to do is um, never do anything. They just make excuses why they can't do anything. And you can never really get them to do much. Well, these guys, there's you know a couple things that we can glean on this. And we see why sinful people don't come to God. Because all sinners are united on this point. They all make excuses of why they, they, they don't renounce their sin and come into relationship with God. Well, the first guy, he says, I bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. Well, 
you know, <laughs> this just doesn't make any sense to me. I bought a few pieces of land, and there's never a time where I bought a piece of land. First of all, how the, the supper is going to be probably at night. You're going to this feast, and it's at night. How are you going to go inspect a piece of land at night? You know, it's like looking at uh, Zillow at a piece of land and just never, you know, it's like all the pictures are in the dark. Secondly, you know, who buys a piece of land without first seeing it? I, I mean... I would never do that. I would never think of, you know what I should, you know, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy me some land and not even look at it. I'm just going to kind of think, think through this. No, I'm not going to think through it. Just buy it. Nobody ever does that. And this is just one of those ridiculous excuses. And, you know, this is a, a picture of possessions that the possessions of this world, the possessions and and the stuff that we have is going to get between us and a saving knowledge of Jesus. The second guy says, um, I've bought five yoke of oxen, so 10 oxen, and I'm going to test them. So this is a guy that, you know, he's, it's a profession. So we had possessions, now we have prof- a profession. You know, the oxen, they're going to bring uh, increase to you. But if you... Uh, uh, a yoke of oxen is like buying a brand new car. So this guy's like buying five brand new cars and he's, he hasn't even looked at these guys. So just like the guy that bought the land, who's going to buy five brand new vehicles and not even look at them, not even test drive them, not even know what the features are, not even have a clue, but he's going to go do this and not only going to go do it, but he's going to go do it at night as well. That's, ex- <laughs> I mean, who's going to do that? Lastly, the, guy, the last guy says, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So you've got possessions, professions, and relationships, people. Those are the main reasons why people don't come to the Lord because they think that he's going to take something from them or he's going to make them get out of their positions, the profession, or maybe their relationships that they're in aren't the right ones that they should be in. And what, what we see is uh, Jesus, is, he, he doesn't want him to make the same mistakes. He wants him to come into a saving knowledge of the kingdom. And these guys are just making excuses. And I think the big thing is we need to see this meta-narratively. See, the master of the story is God. And originally called Israel through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was Israel, the 12 tribes, Noah, Joshua, Jud- to the judges, to Samuel, to David, to the kings, to the prophets, he, he, he said, hey, you guys are the elected people, and I'm going to redeem humankind through you. I'm going to send the Messiah through you, through the tribe of Judah. And here he is, and they're expecting him. I mean, this, that's the thing is he knew, they knew that he was coming. The Jews knew that he was coming in this invitation, and they, they made excuse of why they didn't want to accept Jesus. He wasn't what they thought he was going to look like. And so they, they made excuses of their own kind. So God says, hey, I'm going to go to the unorthodox Jews. I'm going to go to the tax collectors who are Jews that are working for the Romans. I'm going to go for the sinners. I'm going to go for the harlots. I'm going to go for the drunkards, those people that don't necessarily follow God but are still of the Jewish um, uh, bloodline. And, hey, the servant went out, the Holy Spirit goes out, and he gets those, and still, 
it didn't fill his, he said, there's still room. And the master says, okay, well, then we need to, we need to go out and we're going to go to the Gentile world. We're going to find the ones that were previously not welcome into the party, the most unlikely, unclean, undeserving groups of people, and we're going to bring them to the feast. And there is still room, and the Holy Spirit's still calling people and saying, hey, there is room at the table. Go out and compel them. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep begging, and tell them, hey, Jesus is knocking at your heart. He wants to come in, and he wants to have dinner with you. He wants to chill with you. You have to compel the non-Christian. You have to compel the Christian who maybe not be, he, he might not be walking with the Lord so much. All are welcome. All can come. In verse 25, he says, now great multitudes went with him. So he rebuked the Pharisee. He rebuked the guests. He rebuked the, uh, the host. He rebuked the guy that said, hey, we're all going to eat in the kingdom in his own way. He, he, he went against them and he said, hey, hold it. It's not what you think it is. Now great multitudes went with him. So he left. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And this just seems crazy. What do you hate my life? Hate my wife? Hate my kids? Hate my mom and dad? What are you talking about, Jesus? I thought you said we should love and that love. You know, there, you should love your wife and wash her in the water of the word. He's not literally saying hate. What he's saying is that in comparison to your love for Jesus and your love for his person, your passion, your number one passion in life, it sh in comparison to that, should be it should feel like hate to these other people and to your own life. And I, I think the Lord is saying, hey, through all this, if you're going to follow me and you want to be my disciple, then you have to, in comparison to all these things, hate them to your passion and fervor for me. And the, the big irony is that if we love Jesus, if we truly love Jesus and we, we love him with such an intense love as compared to our love for others, we're going to love those people more. We're going to love our wife more. We're going to love our husband more. We're going to love our kids more. We're going to love our father and mother more. And we're going to love our life more. Our life will be more fulfilled. And Jesus goes on and he says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And this is where Jesus is making a distinction between the one that is saved, the one that has found salvation, the one that is justified just as if I never sinned, and the one that is a disciple, the one is, that is being consecrated. And, you know, bearing your cross isn't something like, oh, I've got this sickness, or I've got this disease, or I've got this, you know, whatever, this thorn. Oh, I'm bearing my cross. No, bearing your cross is that you are laying down your life redemptively. You're, by choice, you're laying down your life for the gospel's sake. And, you know, you may be a disciple one day and not another. And God is saying, hey, I want you to give your life over. Because there's a difference between being saved, just being saved and being a part of the church and being a saint and being a disciple. And Jesus goes on and he says to count the cost. For which of you, intending to build the tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest... 
After he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, what we see is there's just, Jesus is parsing out the difference between, hey, you can be saved. He wants everybody to come to the dinner. He was, he's saying, go out, compel those that aren't saved to have an opportunity to come to the dinner. Come, come to the, come to the great feast of the king, of the coming king, the second coming. Salvation is coming to Jesus' cross and accepting salvation freely. It's coming to the Lord and saying, I believe it. I believe that you came, you lived a perfect life. God came down to to earth, lived a perfect life, died the death that he did not deserve, and gave up all of his goodness and in exchange took all of your sin He gave you all of his righteousness. You took all of his righteousness. He took all of your sin. You gave all of your sin on the cross, and you accept salvation freely. But on the other side, discipleship is picking up your cross and following Jesus every day, daily, asking Jesus, I'm going to pick up my cross. I'm going to follow you. Salvation is compelling as many as possible to come. Go out, go everywhere, and compel everyone to come into the kingdom. It's free. It is free. Come in. But discipleship, it's cautioning all who come. Hey, count the cost. It's costly. Luke 9, we just went over it. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest. Salvation is about justification, just as if I never sinned. Jesus' blood completely washes all your sin away. Discipleship is about consecration. It's about Lord, I'm going all in. I'm pushing all my chips in. Salvation is positional, where you stand in Christ. You're robed in his righteousness. You're spotless before the Father because you're hidden in Christ, Colossians. Salvation is positional. Discipleship is practical. How are you going to live? It isn't about you you are in Christ, but Christ is in you. Galatians 2.20, for I have been... uh, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. You're born again. Salvation. But discipleship is Jesus living his life through you. It's consecration, position, practice, positional, practical truth. And this is littered everywhere. You can find it in every single epistle where where Paul or John or Peter start off with the positional piece. Are you in Christ? Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you the uttermost or the guttermost? Everybody, and you can be saved every day. You can come and give your life to the Lord every day. Commit your life to the Lord every day. But Do you know what consecration means? Do you know to dedicate, 
You are a disciple. You are disciplined. You are going to wake up early and spend time with the Lord. Have you counted the cost? Have you said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going all in. But we're talking about a deeper discipleship. Why would you do it? Why would you do it? Well, Jesus goes on and says, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And I want you guys to think about what Jesus is saying. You have to differentiate between the, the, the promises that Jesus gives to his disciples and to those that are saved, okay, his general followers. And at any moment, you can decide if you're just a general follower, just a, just a, a, nor, a normal Joe that comes just on Sundays, never reads his Bible, never doesn't really know the scriptures, doesn't want to have a deeper relationship. Right now, I'm saved. I believe that Jesus died for my sins but I want to go deeper. You can do that. You can do that at any point. And those of you that have never been saved, I'm going to compel you right now. Come to the Lord. Come to the kingdom. Come to the banquet. Come in to salvation. Come in and be a part of the church spiritually. For the Bible says, In 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sent for for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. Your sin, Jesus became, and the wrath of God that we deserve was given to Jesus. And all you have to do, the Bible says, is you look at him and you say, yeah, I believe that Jesus, who was God, the reason why the Pharisees wanted to kill him mainly was because Jesus said that he was God. He committed a blasphemy. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great switcheroo. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. What you have to do is you have to look at that and you have to see him on the cross. Believe that he took your sins. He died. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you shall be saved, Romans 10. For all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. And I think the big thing that you have to think of is, do you want to live in eternity? And think, oh, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Because this is the deal. You're either going to be somebody that takes that great wager and says, hey, if I go all in on Jesus and I'm wrong, I lose nothing. But if I go all in on Jesus and I'm right, I gain everything. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, you shall be saved. And those of you that are Christians, and maybe you're just the general follower, and you want to be in a deeper walk, you have to look at what Jesus says here at the end. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? How can salt lose its flavor? 
Well, you take a spoonful of salt, you put it in your mouth. Oh, that is salty. Take a spoonful of salt, take a cup of water. You put it in that water and you drink that water. It's salty, but it's not quite as salty as it, just a spoonful. You go to a law lake with that same spoon of salt. You dump the salt in the law lake. You can't even know it's there. The way that this happens is you get diluted. How do you lose your savor? You get diluted. You get diluted by the world. You get watered down. The message becomes softer. The gospel is not preached with power. Discipleship isn't thought through. The Bible isn't taught in your house or in your mind or in your heart. Prayer does not happen. Hell is not warned of. And I would just say, those of you that are Christians, get fired up to love the Lord. So I'm going to have everybody stand up. The communion tables are open. This is, communion is something to declare and remember Christ until he returns. If you guys could come down the middle and go out around the outside, that'd be great. Thanks a lot, guys. And Jesus, just pray that you would bless these people. They've come to listen to your word. I pray that they would be saved. And if they are saved, they would grow in their love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.